Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most heinous, the most gruesome, the most high-profile homicides in Maryland, they are examined, they are profiled, and they are discussed. For this season, season six, the focus is on robbery-related murders, or basically murderers where the victim was killed simply because the killer wanted something that the other person had, that the victim had. And like I said in the last episode, trust me, in the state of Maryland, they have way more than, they have a lot more, a lot of these type of cases of homicides. And I only selected 10 of the most horrific. And this is only part one. Part two will come later eventually, but for now, right now, season six, I'm only focused on 10 cases. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it and focus on this episode. On this episode, the serial killer, John Frederick Thanos will be profiled. And as in each episode and in every season, every season that has been before this, there will always be an unsolved homicide that needs special attention that will also be profiled. And for this episode, the unsolved shooting murder of 20-year-old Yasmin Wilson will be examined. Now, let me start out just by saying this. In the state of Maryland, there are murderers and then there are like full-blown killers. What's the difference, you might ask? A murderer is a person who, I mean, like, yeah, they, they might have killed somebody, but at least they have, like, a legitimate reason or their own motive. You know, whatever, it could have been self-defense, whatever the reason is, you're still a murderer. I mean, it's the their reason for doing what they do. No matter how crazy the reason may seem, most murderers, they do have, you know some form of remorse or regret at least later on in life at least eventually they do have a little bit of remorse um and then you have like your full-blown killers your full-blown cold-blooded killers the ones who where it seems like literally they was put on this earth just to kill they was born to literally bring harm to people no matter what i mean born with a like fucked up twisted mind or flat out whatever you want to call it just born weird they shoot without hesitation they have absolutely no remorse they stab without you know warning uh you know they 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 their mind is just twisted they're not sorry for what they've done 
It's just like they just seem like they just kill seemingly for like no reason. Could care less about emotions. They think prison is a country club. They just flat out don't give a fuck about nothing. Not even themselves. And that's exactly the stilo of the killer the killer I'm gonna discuss for this week's episode. Let's start, let's just flat out let's start with his upbringing. Maybe that has a lot to do with it. Let's start with his upbringing, his childhood. Born into this world on March 28th, 1949, John Frederick Thanos was the first child of his married parents. John's mother was from uh, Virginia, and although John's father was a truck driver for uh, Lever Brothers, he was a good provider, and the, the family grew up in a middle-class area in Dundalk. Reportedly, John's father, though, was a sexual, abusive, sadistic human being who, according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, John's father would abuse and terrorize his kids. It's documented that John's father was a mentally ill World War II vet who was treated for his mental illness at uh, Prairie Point VA Hospital in Harford County, where his wife was an employee. John's father was so abusive to his son John that when John was four years old, he was treated for a ruptured scrotum because his father punched him in his testicles. At four years old now, John's father also twisted his son's wrist so bad that he cracked uh, John's bone. It's also reported that John's father would mentally scare the shit out of his kids by turning off all the lights and the power in their house and then John's father would whisper like creepy things through the vents, the heating vents, that he was the devil and that he was specifically coming from John. But all of that, all of that was nothing compared to this this other stuff that was going on. Like none of that compared to the sick sex abuse that John's father inflicted on his own daughter own daughter. According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, John's father would drug his wife with sleeping pills so that he could molest their oldest daughter. Most of the time, these six sessions would happen in John's bedroom. Sometimes these escapades would happen with John in the same bed, like with them, while John supposedly slept. But it was in the same bed where he was sleeping at. And he said that there would only be a blanket between them and John and his sister would have to endure the abuse that was inflicted on them by their father. And in a way, it was kind of like John was being abused too if he had to witness this. <sighs> Known as Freddy as a kid, John's father eventually thought that John was being, being in a bed was just like too much and John was getting in the way. So as John got older and he began to realize what his father was doing and his father knew that he began to realize what he was doing by being right next to them, John's father would lock his son out the house so that he could molest his daughter in peace. And John's mother supposedly knew little, if anything, about what was going on between her husband and her daughter. Although young John was already showing signs of, you know, delinquency at just 12 years old, John started getting into big boy trouble. At just 12 years old, not even a teenager yet, 
John got expelled from school. Not suspended, but expelled. And it, it takes a lot to get expelled out of school, for the record, and especially Maryland. Kicked out for setting, and this this is for setting off a homemade bomb on school grounds. Now, that is something that will get you expelled. A complete and big no-no. I mean, because of that, John got labeled as unteachable or ungovernable, which is the same thing, and sent to Boys Village in Prince George's County, where he began to run away from there repeatedly. During one of John's juvenile detention stints, John was evaluated officially by psychiatrists who labeled him as a highly disturbed teen with obvious paranoid traits who could be dangerous to people. And they all agreed that they basically, they basically recommended that he get intensive psychiatric treatment. But with John, that went in one ear and out the other. He was like, you know, no psychiatric treatment no because john kept running away from boys village he got sent to the merlin training school for boys in cub hill but john managed to run away from there too this time at 15 years old and out on the run john stole a car wrecked the car got caught and in may of 1964 the 15 year old john started serving his first adult prison sentence and was sentenced to real time as a 15-year-old at the Merlin Institute for Men in Hagerstown. Now, 15 years old, stolen car charge, adult prison. That sounds kind of fucked up and twisted now, but if you're from Baltimore County and you're listening to this, most juveniles in Merlin who steal cars nowadays, they don't get charged as an adult, first of all, even if it is like not your first offense. But, but John Thanos, <laughs> if, if you remember, plus check this out. If you from Baltimore and you remember, uh, John Thanos, then you already, you remember what he looked like. You know, if you listen to this, you remember like he was only like 120 pounds, five feet, seven with long hair. And in an adult prison in the 1960s, you already know what happened. You already know what happened. Do the math. I mean, according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, during John's two-year prison stint, he managed to set fire to his tear. Uh, he managed to break out a window in his cell, get into fights with other inmates. He would deliberately break the rules over and over and over again and be an all-out bitch to everybody so he could be put in isolation deliberately on lockup away from the other inmates. But at the same time, John got put in isolation or lockup for allowing two other inmates to have sex with him. Mm. So, anyway, obviously, I believe he was mentally ill. The doctors and the shrinks in the prison started giving him Meteril, whatever that is, Meteril. And they tried to control him and keep him in line and keep him sedated because basically... You know, they had nothing else to do with him. They, they, it was nothing else they could do with him but to keep him sedated. After serving his two-year sentence, John was released from prison. But in October of 1969, John was arrested and convicted for raping and beating, for, uh, raping and beating a woman in Rosedale. And this time, at his sentencing hearing, uh, John, he zapped out and he threatened the judge before 
the judge gave him 21 years in prison. Diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, by the time John reached his late teens to early 20s, John had already started wearing women's makeup, women's clothes, and his mugshot from the 70s, the 70s showed him with like makeup, earrings, and long hair, and lip gloss, and his hair was braided like into these two like pippy long stocking looking like pigtails or whatever. John did manage to escape briefly in 1971 while he was serving his sentence for the, the rape charge after he hid into a laundry bin and rode out of the prison van on a laundry truck. But as he was caught like right after that and brought back to the prison. He served almost all of that 21 year prison sentence and while serving his sentence, John still managed to mail pictures of himself to the woman that he raped, telling her that he planned to escape. Despite all of this, John was released in April of 1986. But just a month later, a month later, Job robbed a convenience store, got caught, and got a new eight-year prison sentence. See, now notice John basically been locked up almost every day since he was 15 with less than a year of a break in between all of that like i said there are there are people that just don't give a fuck while locked up john was not a model inmate this time either and he constantly stayed in trouble the other inmates just considered him you know sick demented and crazy and they just pretty much avoided him and served their time but john was used to prison by this time because clearly he was institutionalized is what I call it. I mean, almost all of his life spent behind bars. While locked up, John got infractions or write-ups for making homemade wine, stabbing other inmates, you know, arguing with the COs. Once John spent 10 months on lockup for beating another inmate with a table leg. And in prison, John used whatever illegal drug that was offered to him anything that was available available to him he shot up in his arms or, or managed to, to sniff up his nose i mean basically he was doing anything to numb the mental psychotic world that he was living in in prison john also had documented on the flip side he had also had documented plenty of suicide attempts like i said he had long long hair that came to his waist and once he wanted to end his life so bad that he tied his own 20-inch long waist-length pigtails around his own neck and hung himself with his own hair and ended up admitted to the hospital in a coma. I mean, that's a suicide attempt. But despite all of this, in the late 1980s, John did earn his high school diploma and he completed two semesters of college at Eastern Correctional Institute where he got A's and B's. John loved to write, and some of the stuff he wrote was, in his own words, around here I'm known as the hound of hell. There is no innocent people in this world as far as I'm concerned. I know how to hurt people. I take the things away they love, and if people go back and start checking around, anybody that comes in contact with me will see that there is a trail of tragedies that always befall the things they love. And they can point the finger at me and I accept it proudly. Okay. If that ain't it's like a warning for your ass, I don't know what it is. But the Department of Corrections screwed up a few times during John's prison ventures too. 
In April 5th, 1990, after John had been locked up for about four years, Eastern Correctional Institution, or ECI, the prison in Somerset County, a correctional officer released him by mistake, and that correctional officer was later fired. John was eventually caught again, but released legitimately in April of 1990. But just before John got out of prison, he found real love, or so he thought. The lucky woman just happened to be a correctional officer who obviously did not feel the same way about John. John wrote and mailed this woman tons of letters filled with God knows what, and when John was released from prison in April of 1990, on the day he got out, that same CO filed harassment charges. She filed harassment charges against him. Uh, the court didn't have time for all this foolishness going back and forth. And for some reason, that case was put on an inactive docket, meaning ain't no court date or no hearing going to be set no time soon. So the harassing letters just kept coming. John finally managed to also get his first job ever as a bricklayer, but he left that job and started working as a chicken processor in Salisbury. That same year, after being out of prison for only four months, John exposed himself to a woman who was nice enough to give him a ride. When the woman decided to press charges for this, John was convinced in his mind that he was going to violate his parole and end up going back to prison. So in his mind, John thought, you know what, if I'm going back to prison after spending almost, you know, my entire life locked up for petty this and petty that, I might as well go out with a bang. I might as well go to prison for something that's really worthy, something meaningful. And he thought, I got to do something to make that, like, make sure, you know, I'm not getting out or make sure they never release me. So on August the 29th, 1990, John quit his job, quit his job, cashed his paycheck, bought a 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle from a gun shop in Salisbury, sawed off the barrel of the gun so it would be able to fit into like this black doctor bag that he carried around and he went back to what he knew best that same night that he quit his job he stuck his sawed off shotgun in the face of a cab driver forced the cab driver to get in the trunk of his cab telling the cab driver that if he listened and cooperated then he wouldn't be killed Two days later, on August the 31st, 1990, John was out hitchhiking when 18-year-old Gregory Taylor pulled over and offered to give John a ride. The Mardello High School student, who was from Hebron and worked as a welder, had no idea that his act of kindness would prove to be a fatal one. When Gregory pulled over, John pulled out his sawed-off held the 18-year-old at gunpoint and ordered him to drive to a secluded, hidden, wooden area in a deserted road in a rural part of Worcester County on the eastern shore. All the way out there, I mean, where at first, John just planned to take Gregory's car and leave him tied up to a tree. But because Gregory wasn't feeling it and complained about it, John turned violent. In John's words, he said, I decided to, you know, uh, take his car. 
and I made him turn around and head back to Salisbury, uh, looking for a place that I could tie him up safely, you know, where he couldn't squawk to authorities. He was a constant nuisance, whining. He didn't want to cooperate, so I got fed up and just shot him. I took him, found a place, laid him down. He didn't want to be tied up, so I shot him three times and left. Now, John later confessed to the detectives that while Gregory cried and begged for his life, he shot him three times in the chest. For a minute, John said that he thought about not killing the teenager because he seemed so innocent. But in John's words, he said, my twisted mind was twisting. And I said, what the hell? What does it matter? After killing Gregory, John said that he spit on his gun to wipe off the blood that had splattered on it. Then he stole Gregory's car and continued his reign of terror. John tried to disguise his appearance to look more like Gregory so as not to cause suspicions as to why he was driving Gregory's car. The next day, on September the 1st, 1990, John drove Gregory's car to the Big Red gas station and convenience store on Pulaski Highway in Middle River. Once there, John encountered the clerk there, 16-year-old Billy Weinbrenner. Billy's father managed the gas station, but today Billy was there alone, working the register. John needed some gas, but he had no money, so he worked out a deal with the 16-year-old where John traded a watch that his father had given him after he retired for $20 and a tank of gas. When or if John came back to get the watch back, then John would have to pay $60, a total of $60, in order to get the watch back. Kind of like how a pawn shop deal, which is done, like they do this all the time in Baltimore. Anyway, surprisingly, John and Billy agreed on this deal, and John left. But on the next day, September the 2nd, 1990, John went into another convenience store in Salisbury, and this clerk wasn't so lucky. After pulling out his gun and robbing the store of $96, something the clerk did or didn't do set John off and maybe more likely, John was just on a murderous rampage anyway. But before leaving, John shot the clerk in the head. The clerk lived, although severely injured. He survived the shooting and the very next day, on September 3rd, 2000, September 3rd, 1990, John came back to the Big Red gas station to get his watch back because now he had the cash. And just like before, Billy was Billy was there at the register, but this time Billy was not alone. To keep him some company, Billy's 14-year-old girlfriend, Melanie Pastoria, joined him in the store. There's no way at all for these two kids to have known that the demon, the monster, the trigger-happy animal... That stood in front of them. See, the problem was this: Billy had liked the watch with the that, that was engraved with John S. Thanos after John's father, which obviously has some sentimental value to it. But Billy had given John's watch to his girlfriend, and guess what? Billy's girlfriend did not have the watch on her because she also liked the watch so much that she had left it in her home in a jewelry box. Obviously, none of this mattered because. John was probably going to kill him anyway. I mean, he had just shot a man the day before and another man a few days before that. So when these kids told John that they didn't have his watch, 
John pulled out his gun, announced the robbery, basically telling them to fill up a bag with cash. After Brian emptied the cash register, John shot Billy once after Billy emptied the cash register. John shot Billy once in the back of the head and John shot Melody twice in the head. Then he casually left the store like it was any other day. After being found by a customer, 911 was called and Billy was rushed to Maryland Shock Trauma Unit in critical condition. Melanie was uh, Melody was also rushed to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead later. She had been a student at Kenwood High School in Essex. Meanwhile, after killing Billy, Billy, Billy and Melody on the evening of September the 4th, 1990, Salisbury police saw John driving north and they vaguely saw that he matched the description of the person who just committed a robbery of two area stores. And these cops put their lights on and they pulled John over. John did pull over and slow down a little bit. But as the cop got out and started to walk over to John's car, John started shooting at the cop's car like a real life scene from a Wild Wild West movie. I mean, of course, the cops, what you think they're going to do? They shot back. The shootout continued for a few minutes before John managed to drive away jump out of the car he was driving and abandoned it somewhere in some woods that was close by. John then took off on foot towards the highway. When John saw a car that was passing by, he flagged that car down, forced his way in the car. Next thing you know, John took the, the driver hostage. When he pulled out his gun, he let that sawed off through the talking and that man drove, drove John all the way to Delaware where a Delaware cop saw the car. The cop followed the car in a parking lot and surrounded it. That led to another all-out shootout between John and, and the cops. The driver of the car that John had carjacked, he jumped out of the car, ran for his life, dodging flying bullets the whole time in the process. I can't even imagine. By this time, three other Delaware cop cars came on the scene and started shooting at the car that John was in. And all of this occurred in the parking lot. Both cars got shot up, but nobody else got hurt. Nobody. And basically, John just gave up when he ran out of bullets. John was arrested immediately and charged with a complete rack of charges. The next day, on September the, September the 5th, 1990, Delaware State Police turned his ass over to the Maryland State Police, and John was held without bail. When John was questioned by the detectives, John confessed to it all, fight and sleep. John described what he did sleepily. I shot that boy in the head, John said, referring to Billy. He tried to duck, but I shot him on his way down. And she tried to duck, and I shot her on the way down. Then I shot him, her two more times, in the head, I think. And I shot her one more time. Blood splattered on the gun and a little bit on me. John calmly continued like wow back at shock trauma on in baltimore on september the 9th 1990 billy lost the fight for his life and passed away the injuries from the shooting were just too massive john had three separate trials and each one was a spectacle john changed his plea to not guilty and in march of 1991 john's 14-day trial 
consisted of the first shooting, the shooting where the convenience store clerk got shot in the head but lived convicted. The jury only took 20 minutes to find John guilty of first-degree uh, robbery. <laughs> like, why are we doing this? For this one, the judge sentenced him to 50 years in prison. Next came the homicides, and he knew he was done. But he hated his lawyers, and he represented himself doing that. But before we go back to trial for that, the, the one he got sentenced for the kidnapping of when he forced the, him to drive him to Delaware, he got 50 years for that. And like I said, when he faced like his murder trials, he was like, fuck it, and decided to represent himself. So he took the stand in his own defense. <laughs> what a disaster. What a mess. He got convicted of that. This time, the jury only took 35 minutes to convict him of three first-degree murder charges plus related robbery charges. After John got convicted, he showed no enthusiasm. You know, he yawned. He sat back in his chair. When you combine all of this, plus John's history of growing up in prison, and, you know, Merlin did have the death penalty at the time, what did you think the prosecution wanted? And this was in Baltimore County? John was the perfect candidate for the death penalty. And if you think John's trial was a spectacle, with absolutely nothing to lose now, John actually wanted the death penalty to be put out of his misery and he did any and everything to make sure he got it. During John's sentencing hearing, while waiting to be sentenced, John tried to take his own life several times. He swallowed 14 sharpened pencils. Once he swallowed 15 spoons. He swallowed his glasses. He swallowed a plastic toothbrush that had been sharpened at both ends. <laughs> Look y'all, the man did not want to be here no more. But his life was saved every single time at john's sentencing hearing john made fun of the victim's family saying he wished he could dig up their bodies and defile their corpse in john's words he said their cries bring laughter from the darkest caverns of my soul i don't believe i could satisfy my thirst yet in this matter unless i was to be able to dig up these brats bones up out of their graves right now and beat them into powder and urinate on them and then stir it into a murky yellowish elixir and serve it up to their loved ones Woof! and he told the judge that he wished that he could bring even more pain and turmoil on billy and melanie's family he went off so bad that the judge that the judge just threatened to have him bound and gagged in that courtroom if he didn't keep his mouth shut then John started throwing the victim's family obscene gestures and the judge threatened to put him in like handcuffs or even a straitjacket, like Hannibal style. <laughs> Let me tell y'all something. John Thanos did not give a fuck and he did not want to be here no more. He didn't care about no prison. Before John was sentenced, the prosecutor, prosecutor said to the judge, he has nothing at all that is redeeming. In my 26 years of prosecuting in Baltimore County, I don't know if I can think of a greater threat to society than if he were to escape. John's own lawyer, they, they tried their best, but they were left with basically like nothing to work with. They even admitted that John was a monster. John's attorney said what he did was reprehensive. That's true. The other thing is he's extremely dangerous. He is an extremely dangerous human being. And really, in our society, we should not kill sick, sick people. 
he really is a sick person. Yeah, the jury agreed that he was sick, but on August the 31st, 1990, John received three death sentences for killing Gregory. Then in June of 1992, John received two more death sentences for shooting Billy and Melody. When Brian received those death sentences, he calmly asked the judge, is that by gas? He did not care, y'all. When the judge actually asked John if he wanted the death penalty or life without parole, John answered sarcastically, life in prison with the possibility for escape. <laughs> After John was sentenced to death, like Gary Gilmore in uh, one of my favorite books as a kid, The Execution Song, uh, John's attitude was like, bring it on, let's do this. Like, fuck all his dumbass appeals and all that, let's do this. John fought with his lawyers over, you know, any appeals that they filed on his behalf to save his life and to stop the execution. John, he protested and complained about all the pleadings the ACLU and his own mother and sister filed to try to stop the execution and convince John to try to save his own life. Back then, in January of 1994, Maryland used to use the gas chamber to execute or kill his criminals, but Maryland legislation had recently passed a law stating that the gas chamber was cruel and unusual. unusual. So the state of Maryland started using lethal injections as the method of choice to execute his criminals. With John's execution date set for May 17, 1995, 1994, um, the, and as the prison got closer to that date, John had visits with his mother, who reported to the Baltimore Sun, who said that John was finally happy and at peace. John also visited with Catholic priests. As John got closer and closer to his execution date, he was moved from Supermax, which is the state's most secure prison, to across the street to a cell on the second floor of the Maryland Penitentiary, Maryland Penitentiary around 3 in the morning, where I used to work at. Anyway, this cell was only 40 feet away from the gas chamber. It's reported that John received two doses of Valium and spent his final hours smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, taking naps, and watching TV outside his cell. The prison offered John a last meal at 9.05 p.m. of knockwurst, peas, cabbage, and juice, but John turned it all down. He said, tell the press my last meal was coffee. John specifically said to the reporters, when a blue skull cap and a regular orange prison jumpsuit, John was led into Maryland's death chamber with John saying, let's get on with it. When John was asked if he had any last words, John said, adios. The needle was put into John's thigh vein because the veins in his arms had been severely damaged from drug abuse. It took almost eight minutes for John to officially die and at 1.10 a.m. on May 17, 1994, 45-year-old John Thanos became the first person to be executed in Maryland by using lethal injection. John also became the first person in Maryland to be executed since 1961. John's body was immediately removed from the prison by the State Board of uh, Anatomy because John chose to donate his body to science. Now, everybody knows why this was notorious in the state of Maryland. I mean, should he received received uh, 
the question is should he receive the should he have received the death penalty for mental illness <laughs> he wanted to die i believe um actually he's saving taxpayers money he was done he did not want to be here no more mental illness or not he did not want to be here no more i mean he was a brutal murderer he deserved it in my opinion i mean y'all remember when they made him cut his head because he kept trying to kill himself who don't remember thanos it ain't even a much to even really say why this was uh why this was notorious if you're not from baltimore or maryland you don't remember why he was a brutal brutal murderer and i believe he got what he deserved in this case it's it's always going to be uh notorious in maryland because he kind of like brought back the death penalty they were like fry him kill him he's done it's over it's a wrap we're just gonna move right on into this week's unsolved homicide um but before i do let me just mention that it is not just a podcast that focuses on the glorious of the gory or high profile homicides that occur in maryland on this podcast the portion is always going to be dedicated to victims where nobody knows what happens where nobody I should say nobody is telling what happened where a victim was literally here one minute and then gone the next and you'd be surprised at the number of people that were killed and friends of family they have a feeling that they know who killed their loved one but because they can't prove it or they don't have no evidence they don't know how to go about getting answers they don't know how to go about getting justice for the victim and they still left with tons of you know unanswered questions unbelievable grief and it's like the victim died all over again it's hard to just move on with your life like that when you got so many unanswered questions you expected to move on pick up where you left off hope that the detectives would just do their job and then hope that the justice system is going to deliver you some sort of justice that can come close to the feelings that you experience when you lose a loved one to homicide getting justice in the state of maryland don't happen a lot and to be blunt Detectives are kept busy with homicide cases that already have clues and evidence and witnesses. But what about the homicide cases that don't have clues? What happens to all of these homicide cases? With no clues or help or tips or evidence, these cases are eventually labeled as cold cases and put on a back burner, so to speak. And to be honest, nothing really ever happens until evidence falls out of the sky. On this podcast, every single unsolved homicide needs attention, no matter what the victim did or didn't do everyone needs justice i mean last i checked nobody's perfect so with all that being said um and especially since on season six all of the unsolved homicides being women we're going to get right into uh this one for this particular episode on wednesday july the 3rd 2019 around 8 47 p.m 20 year old yasmin wilson was walking in the 400 block of North Rose Street near Orleans Street in Southeast Baltimore. She was minding her business, pushing her one-year-old daughter in a stroller when she was shot in her upper body, shot in front of other kids on the street. Yasmin, known as Yazzie to her friends and family, was rushed to an area hospital, but she died shortly after. This was a particularly bloody weekend Bodymore Murderland and Yasmin was just one of eight women that were shot in all separate shootings in Baltimore City alone. People that's not from Baltimore, seriously, they don't believe me when I say this is literally almost like a shooting a day in Baltimore and not all of them make the news. Not all of them make Murder, Inc. But in this case, according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, Yasmin, she loved rap music, making people laugh, and she loved eating. She was fiercely protective of her daughter 
and she was a feisty woman. Her mother released a comment to Fox that said, Yasmin had a wonderful heart. People watch her children, cherish her children, because they could be here one minute and gone the next. Now, this one is rough. How you gonna shoot somebody in front of their daughter, their one-year-old daughter, and why? Please, people, if you got any information that you can provide in this unsolved homicide that can lead to a conviction or at least an arrest, please give detectives a call at 410-396-2100. You can also give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-402-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to su- subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tinger, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of why I do why I do, why I got into true crime, why I started writing all true books, and the podcast and all that. A lot of people think that it's just, just woke up one day and it was like, boom, I'm going to start a podcast. But nope, that's not hardly true. It's a full-blown method to all of this madness. And this wasn't just some overnight gimmick. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, uh, www.MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And Marilyn is spelled MDS.com. Uh, where you can access episodes from all of the seasons, seasons one through six. You can also find links to all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. Um, and you can also check out my local bestsellers, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome high profile homicide occurring in Maryland will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.